Well, good morning once again. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, uh, and we are just so excited to be here. I am so thankful to be here this morning with you to celebrate, as Ryan just said, the birth of Jesus Christ. And this morning is really, right, we're on the precipice, right? So today's Christmas Eve, in case you forgot. Tomorrow we've got Christmas Day. And this is the time where not only are we excited about gifts and not only are we excited about time with family and maybe really good food and Christmas cookies and all of that, but I know my family gets excited to see who sent us a Christmas card this year, right? Because this is the time where we are receiving Christmas cards from friends and family and coworkers, and when we go through those cards, it's always fun to be like, oh, yeah, I remember when you posted that family photo on social media. That's so cool, right? Like, it's just a great reminder of these people spending money on professional photos. And when we read through those cards, imagine, imagine your surprise if you were going through those cards and you saw, you know, maybe some of the normal names. You saw the Richards and, oh, there's the Johnsons and, oh, there's the Smiths and, oh, there's the other Smiths and the other, other Smiths. And imagine if as you're going through, you then saw, and there's the Beyonce, the Tom Brady, the Spider-Man, right? Like that would be Amazing. Like there are certain names that if they showed up in our list of names, if they showed up in our Christmas card pile, we would stop, we would pause, we would consider the immense implications of that name on that card, right? There are certain names that carry weight, that have meaning. And so this morning, when we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to spend actually a little bit of time examining one of the names that we find in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, starting in the very beginning, verse 1, we're told that in those days, at that time, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. All right, so norm normally... Uh, when we are reading the Christmas story, we kind of see that name. We keep going. We're like, yeah, there's a Caesar. I kind of know. He sells pizza now. He's really good at it, right? Like, that's kind of a thing. But the reality is that for Luke's original audience, this name carried incredible, immense implications. This name carried so much weight. And if we understand his story... And why he's included in this passage, our understanding of his story will actually bring greater insight for the Christmas story. And this is something that I was amazed by that as I studied it, I was, I was a history major at Texas A&M University, a whoop. And when I was going through history, man, there, was, there is a lot of talk, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of books written about Caesar Augustus. Because this man had an incredible impact on this world. This man rose to immense levels, incredible levels of power, which was really impressive because he started as just a simple boy named Octavian, right? His given name was actually Octavian. And as he was growing up, people described him, one of his friends described him as a clever kid, someone who had soft hands and a keen mind, which is an interesting way to describe your child or your friend. In fact, others, as they saw him grow and progress into manhood, they called him a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. That's the, that's the dream, right? To be such a threat that even as you grow up, people look at you and say, wow, this guy is amazing. He's gonna do great things. That's how Octavian began his life. 
And in fact, his distant relative was in power. He was a distant relative of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar rose to power, it was in the Roman Empire and it was, it was a democracy, right? So the Roman Empire at that time was technically a democracy. There was voting and, and discussion and debate. And yet when Julius Caesar rose to power, he was just like a little bit of a dictator, like just, just a smidge, right? It was still technically a democracy, but he was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna kind of you know, hold a little bit more power than guys that have gone before me. And it was, people were kind of going along with it for a while because up to that point, Rome, the Roman Empire was constantly in unrest. It was constantly in basically a state of civil war. And that's what Octavian grew up in. He saw disunity and he saw danger. And he knew that, wow, my distant relative, he's, he's kind of trying to pull the strings together, but even he's not able to accomplish peace. He's not able to accomplish prosperity. And in fact, people were so disappointed and frustrated with Julius Caesar that eventually, some of us might know, he got super assassinated, like just the most. And so when he was eliminated, there was all of a sudden a fight inside the Roman Empire for ultimate power. There is a discussion, there is a debate, there is, there is a dispute over who will become the new leader of the Senate. And in this fight, there were two main candidates. There was a guy named Mark Antony, and there was Octavian, our, bu- our boy, soft hand guy, right? Like, he's there. There was technically a third guy, but he was sort of the Ralph Nader, kind of independent third party. Didn't really make much of many waves. But they had these two main guys. And what happened was Mark Antony was the prime candidate. Like everyone loved him. Like he was a soldier. He was a statesman. He was like very popular with the ladies. Like he was just, he was probably really great at Roman football, right? Like that's kind of who he was. He'd be the quarterback and the running back and the punt returner. Like he would just, he'd just carry the team. Octavian, remember, he's soft hand guy, right? So he's kind of soft. He's a little more quiet. He's a little more sneaky. Uh, he's probably not great at football. He's probably really good at like Roman clue, right? Like it's Antonius in the atrium with the toga rope, right? Like that's, that's what he would be really good at. And so over 17 years, 17 years, there was a vying and a dispute for power to try to gain this leader of the Senate role. And eventually, after 17 years of violence and and, and intrigue and deception and manipulation, Octavian works things out to trap Mark Antony in Egypt where he dies with Cleopatra. That really happened. And so all of a sudden, with the primary candidate removed, Octavian rises to power. There's no one to stand in his way. And what's interesting is that not only did he eliminate his rivals, but as he rose to power, he became really the first true emperor, like all-powerful emperor of Rome. And this was because people learned to love him. They wanted him to be emperor. And amazingly, as he took this, this place of ultimate power, he did amazing things. He established what we call the Pax Romana, which is simply the peace of Rome. When, remember, when he's growing up, there's infighting, there's dispute, there's civil war. But when Octavian steps up, when he becomes renamed as Caesar Augustus, he establishes 200 years of peace. 200 years of perfect peace within the Roman Empire. 
This is unbelievable. This had never been seen before. And it's for that and other reasons that people just began to see him as almost greater than even just a mere mortal, right? He sets up this peace that lasts 200 years. In fact, the Roman Empire would go another 200 years after that. And so people looked at him and they were like, this guy's he's something special. Like he's, he's not like us. And so in fact, in the Senate, they began to call him the divinity of the Senate, assigning him basically godhood. People started to use the term to describe him. They'd call him the Divi Filius. This means literally the son of God. This was a title that he took upon himself. The son of God would refer to himself and others would refer to him, Divi Filius. People began calling him the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Those were titles used to describe Caesar Augustus, soft hand Octavian. That's what he became, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, which is what biblical scholars call foreshadowing. So in this position of power, he accomplished amazing, amazing things. He established, as I said, that peace the Pax Romana, that was the envy of the world for 200 years. He broadened, he expanded the borders of Rome until eventually the empire basically reached from about England to Egypt. That's a huge amount of land. That's, that's pretty much all of, at that time, the known world belonged to the Roman Empire. In this empire, he began to build and, and put in all this infrastructure work to build roads so people could travel quickly and exert power and influence wherever they went, right? He, he enacted a universal currency. Never before could you have gone from Egypt to England and the whole way through pay with the same coin, the same coin that had Octavian's face printed right on the side. But that's what he did. He established a universal currency. He established a dual language system where you could speak kind of whatever you wanted, you know, you could speak your home tongue or your, your, you know, your birth language, but you also needed to speak, you know, Greek. You needed to be able to speak this kind of universal language that, that went across the entire empire so that everyone could understand one another. So not only could you travel across the world paying with the same coin, but you could travel across the world speaking the same language. Never before had that ever been seen. Never before had that ever been accomplished. And so because of this, because of this and other amazing accomplishments, when, it, when he was standing kind of in front of an audience at one point in one of his addresses, as he's waxing poetically about his accomplishments as the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he told them, I found Rome a city of bricks and I leave it a city of marble. It's a proud statement, proud statement from a very powerful man. And so we should be asking ourselves or historians ask themselves, okay, how did he do this? Like, how do you do these amazing, make these huge moves? And Luke actually tells us, he, he kind of pulls back the curtain and, and gives us some insight in Luke chapter two. In Luke two, again, reading back in verse one, now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for what? To register all the empire for taxes. And this was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All right, so what we're told, what Luke kind of reveals and what we understand just from historical context, what, what Caesar Augustus needed to establish this empire, to build this power and establish this peace, he needed cash and he needed troops. And so there was this point in time that Luke is telling us about where Caesar, for the first time, or this first registration, 
He needed to know how many people were across his empire so that he could figure out the exact right amount to tax them. Because he knew as a ruler over a lot of different people, he knew he needed to tax them just the right amount to keep them happy and content, but also demoralized and oppressed. So where do you find that middle ground? I don't know. Maybe some of you have found that tax bracket. Way to go. Like that's, that's what he's aiming for. I want him happy, but I want him oppressed. And so to do that effectively, he's got to get stats. He has to support his 500,000 man army that's, that's laying down the law across the empire. And so because he puts out this, this call, because he puts out this, this decree, what we see, Luke tells us in verse three, that everyone, Again, this is not everyone in Israel. This is not everyone in Egypt. This is not everyone in the city of Rome. Everyone in the empire went to his own town to be registered. Every single person. Imagine that chaos, right? From England to Egypt, every single person. All these people are moving. They're packing. They're moving. They're they're trying to go and they're traveling to get to their hometown to be registered. They're packing and they're traveling. And, And this is another reason why we need to understand kind of historical context. This taxing isn't just taking place for the cash. It's also incredibly demoralizing for a conquered people, right? If someone can just write you a letter and say, I need you to go there. And you're just like, okay, yes, sir. And you go. That's something that establishes or affirms the power of the empire. It establishes the power of the emperor. It's validating Caesar, right? I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the son of God. Therefore, let my will be done on this earth. Everyone go to their hometown. And now we read this. We understand that this took place in the Roman Empire. And it's something that we can look at and marvel and be like, wow, this guy had a lot of power. This guy really made incredible moves. But what's so amazing is that Luke tells us that this isn't just something that Caesar did to serve Caesar. What he reveals in the very next two verses is that there was actually another worker. There was another planner. There was another king at work. In verse four, Luke tells us, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. And so he went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him and who was expecting a child. So all of a sudden, what Luke is doing is he's saying, hey, remember that huge thing? Remember that Caesar Augustus move? Remember when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, remember when the divinity of the Senate, the Son of God, told everybody to start marching? He says, you know what it actually was accomplishing? It was accomplishing God's plan to have Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem so that Mary could give birth and fulfill a prophecy. Why did this happen? Why did all of this take place? Was it for Rome? Was it for Caesar? No, it was for God. This is what Luke reiterates. He says, while they were there, verse six, the time came for Mary to deliver her child, to deliver Jesus. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke is revealing, look, this is how This is why these things took place. This is why the world was set in motion. Not to serve Rome, not to serve the empire, not to serve the emperor. It's serving the plan of God. 
because the audience that Luke is writing to, they would know that Mary and Joseph had to be in Bethlehem. Why? Because it was prophesied by Micah. He said in the, or sorry, that is the wrong passage. I'm gonna read you Micah. In Micah 5, verse two, there is a prophecy made about the Messiah, about the coming king. And Micah told this to the people of Israel. He says, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you, from Bethlehem, a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, one whose origins are in the distant past. So all of this movement, all of this packing, all of this traveling, what is it doing? Is it serving Caesar? No. Is it serving Rome? No. It's serving the Lord. It's serving the one true God who said that I want my son, this perfect king to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill one of hundreds of prophecies made about this Messiah in the Old Testament. Every single one of them fulfilled by Christ. Every single one of them. And it's interesting, this one in particular, because, you know, there's a lot of ways that God, I can think of a lot of ways that God could have gotten Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, right? They could have started there. That could have just, they could have just been living in their hometown, being townies. It's fun. I'm one. It's great. They could have maybe, you know, there could have been a job offer that they go to. Joseph could have gotten like a woodworking internship and they would be going there for, you know, six months or whatever, There's a lot of ways that God could have gotten them to Bethlehem. But what Luke is showing us is that the way God chose to move is he worked through this prideful, powerful man who thought all he was doing was serving himself. And yet it was all, in fact, for the Lord. On his deathbed, Caesar Augustus had this famous quote, whereas he's looking at his advisors, at some of his family, he tells them, I have played the part, and if I've played it well, give me applause. Prideful statement. Prideful statement from a powerful man. But what's so amazing is not only did the Lord use this selfish, self-serving census for his own plans and purpose. In fact, when we look at the legacy left by Caesar Augustus, his census, yeah, it, it, it made sure that 1,500 miles away, Mary and Joseph went to the right town to fulfill one of hundreds of prophecies. We also recognize that as a few decades later, after Caesar was even out of power, his established peace, his expanded borders, his constructed roads, these things allowed Christians just a few decades later to travel safely and easily and, and quickly across the empire sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, as they were traveling to share this good news, to talk about what Christ had done, what Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth had accomplished for the world, they were able to be funded and supported by other churches with a currency that made sense, with a currency that, again, you never could have done this ever before. And yet small localized churches were able to support and fund missionary journeys and church planting like they never could have before. And in fact, as they were traveling across this empire, remember, they were going up to people that had very different experiences, very different backgrounds, 
that had a very different kind of home heart language. And yet they were able to quickly and clearly through a universal, a universal dual language system explain to those people that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the son of God, that he stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin, because of our failure. And then he rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over sin and over death, over these enemies that held us captive. So that now anyone who calls on his name, anyone who believes in him, anyone who trusts in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, anyone who calls on that name, the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords, the one and only Son of God will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is the legacy left by Caesar Augustus. He played the part. He played it, but he did not write the script. So who do we applaud? Do we applaud the actor who inadvertently served the author? No, we applaud the author, the author, the orchestrator of our salvation, the one true God who sent his son to earth to be the perfect gift. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but simply because our God loves us and has chosen to give us mercy, to show us grace. You see, after Jesus was born, shortly after he was born, his parents took him to the temple. And when they went there, they ran into two, two people that they had meaningful interactions with. Uh, one was Anna, and the other one was a guy named Simeon. And what we're told at the very end of Luke chapter 2, in verse 28, is that Simeon took Jesus from Mary, he took him into his arms, and he blessed God. See, Simeon had been waiting all of his life. God had given him a vision and a promise that Simeon would get to see the true Messiah before he died. And so Simeon, when he sees Jesus, he's illuminated by the work of God to understand this is it. He's the guy. He's the Messiah. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the Son of God. And so he takes Jesus in his arms. And in verse 29 of Luke 2, he says, Now according to your word, sovereign Lord, Permit your servant to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Eight days after Jesus was born, where he is being dedicated in the temple, this incredible truth, this incredible promise is spoken over him that he is the product of the true sovereign, the one who's truly in control, that he has come to bring about salvation, freedom from the bondage of decay and death that sin has brought. He has come to be a light, to be a revelation for the Gentiles, the people that didn't grow up in the nation of Israel, and for all the people of all the world, including Israel, that they would see the glory and the might, the splendor, the power and the authority of God Almighty. Not Caesar. Not you, not me. And so as we move into Christmas, my hope, my prayer is that we would just take a moment here and there to pause and reflect, to appreciate and applaud the author of our salvation.
That's what this is about.